And if our kids, K through second, if you want to make your way out to your, your story time, you can head that way. And as they go out, I want you to think about if you've ever experienced a dramatic or drastic before and after photo. So marketers will tell us that the before and after photo are some of the most powerful tools to motivate change and then sell products. And sometimes you don't know which way they're going to go. For example, our kids love to look at our wedding photos and they love to comment <laughs> on the drastic changes and they love to highlight the fact that, hey, Dad, you, have, you had so much more hair then and so much less like of you then. And say, so, yeah, you know the difference between then and now is you. You're the difference. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, before and afters, if you've ever seen like presidential before and afters, like when they started office and then when they left, it makes you wonder like who would want that job because it just weighs on them. And last week we saw before and after in essence of Pharaoh who uh, we were going through the plagues and how the mighty fall. So he begins at the very top of the world and ends at the bottom. But before and after photos, you know, don't always, sometimes they represent a, a powerful transformation. You know, 25 years ago, uh, Bill Phillips started this thing called Body for Life and uh, kind of launched one of the modern multi-billion dollar uh, sports supplement kind of craze. And with the, the Body for Life 12-week transformation with a very healthy dose of myoplex protein shakes and very aggressive workout schedules, some of the transformations were amazing. And we was asked, like, how did, the, how did this happen? He said it was the power of the before and the after photo. And if you look in Exodus, Exodus 2 to Exodus 11, we're given one of the most drastic and dramatic and powerful transformative before and after pictures that you can see. It's Moses's before and after, and you look at the before in chapter 2, and when we begin with this overconfident and impulsive Moses who dramatically acts and then drastically fails, which leads to a passive withdrawn Moses who has little sense of his self-worth, little sense of self-efficacy, low confidence in his abilities, little desire to change, and no courage in the face of the challenges before him. That's Moses chapter 2, 3, 4. And then you get Moses in chapter 11, and through the forging of the plagues and the contest of Pharaoh and a utter commitment to the presence, power, and promises of the living God. The Moses who emerges as a man who his only words are the word of the Lord. His only acts are what God has revealed and called him to do. And his only position is one as a man who's sent by God. He's been transformed into a man of confidence, of calm and control. He's grown into the job he initially rejected. And you see the impulsiveness of chapter 2 and the hesitancy of 3 and 4 and the triumphalism of 5 and the despair of 522 are all gone. And what we see now in chapter 9 is a man of total confidence in God, a man of utter calm in the midst of a storm, chapter 10, and this pervasive fearlessness in the face of Pharaoh in chapter 11. I mean, it's ultimate on-the-job training for this job 
and Moses' performance during the plagues, especially in the middle of the, the tense conflict, the negotiations between him and Pharaoh show his transformation from a dispirited self-doubt to confident self-assertion. And by the end, he's more than a match for Pharaoh. And he's developed these three characteristics that he didn't have before. Uh, he's developed a, a clarity of mind, a stability of soul, and then the, the courage to act. And so what we see in Moses is something that, what we see in a grand scale, something that can be true for all of us on a smaller scale, but we see that the past does not have to be a prison for the present. And failures in the past do not have to poison the present. So what I want to do this week is we're going to look at the plagues for the second week in a row, but as we look at it, I want us to look through the angle of how did Moses experience this drastic and dramatic transformation? And three things that he'd learned and developed. Clarity of mind, courage to act, and stability of soul. And the clarity of mind comes from this openness and obedience to the word of the Lord. And the courage to act comes from experiencing the power of praying in line with the will of the Lord. And the stability of soul comes from a conviction about walking in the way of the Lord. So we're going to look at that. We're going to kind of bounce around from places in chapter 6, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. We'll zero in on a couple places in 11. But we're going to go kind of all through this area. But first, let's think about kind of the transformation because we only really get glimpses as we walk through the story. And the, the opening story in chapter 2, you have kind of these two failures where Moses tries to uh, act and insert himself, and he achieves nothing but rejection from both his own people and from Pharaoh. And then following that first fa uh, failure in chapter 2, Moses flees, he runs away, and he flees into Midian. And there we're only given a glimpse into what was going on in his mind for those 40 years. We were told that he was willing to settle down and with his father-in-law Jethro. And there's a sense of kind of a resignation and an acquiescence to this is my fate, this kind of small life. In some ways, he's letting the dead past bury its own dead, and he's going to make the best of a not-so-great situation. But he does have a home and a job and a family, but it's not the life he had envisioned. And we're just given a little glimpse in what he names his son. So he names his son um, Resident Alien, which I don't know if that was, you know, when you had a child, if uh, you could translate it stranger in a strange land. I don't know if that was on your top ten baby list names. And you can even see from the perspective, like he's, as most fathers are wont to do, he's imposing his own issues and struggles even onto the identity of his child. And he feels like an outcast. He feels like he's a resident alien. He's a stranger in a strange land. And that period of exile goes on for about 40 years until he's uh, very reluctantly not seeking this, but he's confronted by God in chapter 3 and 4. And what you see there is how deeply the experience of failure has shaped him. This past failure, and there's, there's no sense of self-efficacy where he feels like a challenge can be put before him and he can he can uh, exert himself and 
Uh, he doesn't believe that he has the knowledge or the skill or her, his actions can bring about any of the outcomes that he desires. And you just kind of see all that original kind of get up and go that marked him in chapter two, but got him in trouble. It's just gone. And he's living under the shadow of his own failure and the people's rejection. But the beautiful thing is God is not through with him. God is not going to let him off the hook. And God, in essence, argues in him into a corner and is very persistent and doesn't care or even bring up any of Moses' past and his failures and foibles. God's focus is on God and who he is and what he's going to do. And so Moses in chapter 5 very reluctantly goes back to Egypt to try again, and wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, he fails again. And so what does he do this time? Instead of fleeing to Midian, this time in the end of chapter 5, he flees, but into the Lord's presence. And he goes back into the Lord's presence where he gets a renewed vision and sense of both his calling and commission and the promises of the Lord and what he's going to do. And then he goes back and he passes through the crucible of these 10 plagues, one of the most dramatic ages and seasons of conflict that any kingdom or any empire or anyone has ever known, this season of the plagues. And it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, uh, if you want to join the uh, Trinity research team, you know, we say uh, the pay's not great, but the conversations are. But one thing, interesting thing to kind of unpack, all right, how long did the plagues actually take? There's two different theories. Probably the most common held among scholars is that it took about nine months. Uh, another theory would be that it took 40 days. It'd be interesting to go through the symbolic things. of like Nine months is this full gestation period of God's son being birthed out of the pain, the labor pains coming out of Egypt. Or 40 days has symbolic meaning and power, too, as the 40 of the season of silent suffering and being away. But either one, we don't know how long this this season is, but Moses comes through it and comes out on the other side a totally different person, utterly transformed. And, you know, people who've gone through these dramatic uh, experiences, you know, if you want a holiday reading recommendation, one of the books I'm most excited about reading this holidays is uh, Ronald White has a new biography on Joseph Chamberlain, one of the generals in the Civil War, and you, uh, one of the fascinating things about his story is you know, at one point in his life, all he wanted to do was just to settle down and have a quiet life as a full professor at Bowden College in Maine. But then the three years of the, the crucible of being a general in the Civil War, uh, it changed him. And he came home, and he was just never the same. And, and it was hard for people to understand and recognize, how do you deal with somebody who's passed through such a traumatic experience? And anybody, like that's happened to soldiers who went away to World War II or in any other type of challenging setting and you see this, this is what happens to Moses and so you get to chapter 11 and you get this beautiful summary of what's happened throughout this whole section and look at chapter 11 and the way it's summarized starting in verse 3 and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and moreover the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of all the people. So this one, he was so worried. The people, they won't listen. They won't respond. And said, this man has become 
great. The meek have risen. You know, last week, so how did the mighty fall? But this is how did the meek rise? And then you see the speech in chapter, in verse 4. So Moses said, this is announcing the final, the ultimate plague, plague 10. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all those your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And then here's summarizing the entire section. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out. So here you have Moses, you know, this dramatic, embodied, climactic speech. And, you know, one of the amazing things about uh, this section is his standing has risen with each plague. And first the magicians recognize, all right, this is, this is the finger of God. We can't compete here. And then uh, Pharaoh's advisors recognize it. Then all the people in Egypt recognize his superiority and emboldened Moses now speaks. And what's interesting about this speech is God doesn't tell him what to say. He's improving, and from 4 through 8, one Hebrew literary scholar said it doesn't quite translate into English, but this is some of the most beautiful poetic Hebrew in the entire Bible. It's uses beautiful rhythms and images, and it's, it's majestic. And there's almost a strange irony who the one in chapter 5 and chapter 6 says, no, I can't do this. I am not a man of words. I have uncircumcised lips. I can't talk then delivers one of the most beautiful speeches, at least from a rhetorical standpoint, in all of human history. So there's been this powerful transformation, this dramatic before and after. The meek has risen, and now he has clarity of mind, stability of soul, and a courage to act. And so where does that come from? So let's kind of look back in the story and think about, all right, where do these things come from? And these aren't like stages where you do this one first, then the next one, then the next one. Really, it's almost like a flywheel where they're self-reinforcing, and, but we'll, we'll take them in, in this order. We'll start with clarity of mind. So his clarity of mind comes from an openness and then obedience to the word of the Lord. See, in any anxious times where you have so much clutter just swirling, either in the world or in your own mind, the, one of the most important things to do first is get some mental clarity about the right things. And for Moses, the right thing was a commitment to the word of the Lord. And we saw this a couple weeks ago where he had to learn that his criteria for success is not the response of the people. It's not that. The criteria for success is did he obey the word of the Lord? Do as the Lord has said. And that becomes a theme through the entire Pentateuch. And they did as the Lord had said. As long as he's focused on his own skill set, his own knowledge, 
or as long as he's focused on things he can't control, like how Pharaoh's going to respond or how the people are going to respond, he's going to live in a state of insecurity and uncertainty. But once he gets his mind off of that and onto the word of the Lord, who he said he is and what he said he's going to do, that's what brings his clarity of mind. That becomes his rock, his anchor, his stability. And you can see it's kind of a remarkable transformation. So you can flip back and even look at the first plague in plague chapter 1. You know, God starts, and there's almost two full paragraphs where God is going to tell him, this is exactly what you say. And then Moses says, this is exactly what God tells him. So here, I'm going to tell you exactly what to say. But then you compare that to plague nine and plague 10. Moses is starting to be able to rift and go off on his own. And so there's a development, a transformation. You can think about it. It's how you grow and develop. You know, at some point, you, you tell kids, like, you just have to obey. It doesn't matter if you understand. You just do what I say. But you don't want them to live their entire life that way. Like, you don't want them calling you when they're 45, asking, I, can I cross the street now? You're going to have to make that decision on your own. And so they develop. So that starts. And Moses has that development. But you can see, look at chapter 7, you know, verse 20. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them. So that's where it begins. And then that first exchange, the first plague where Moses comes in and repeats the word of the Lord verbatim to Pharaoh. And then there's a transformation with the Nile into blood. And uh, it's interesting because Pharaoh's not moved. He's not impressed. He's like, all right, my, my magicians can do that too. Big deal. Now, what's interesting is his magicians could mimic the, the plague, but they couldn't clean it up. So they could, they could kind of create the chaos, but couldn't create the recreation. Couldn't fix it. But he didn't notice that. And I wonder how it transformed Moses, because he had experienced this long probationary period before coming to what we see in hindsight is the transformative moment in his life in chapter 7, verse 6, where it says, Moses and Aaron, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And you see it all through, it repeats like in 8, 17, and they did as the Lord commanded him. And we see at the end of chapter 11, they did these wonders as the Lord had told him. So you think, all right, in your life, when do you need clarity of mind? Is your mental world has a book called Chatter. And there he kind of unpacks and has dedicated his life to studying the internal dialogue that happens in people's minds. And he's, uh, he estimates that the average person has mentally going on in their head what would be the equivalent if you could, because, you know, in your mind, you can say things a lot faster than your mouth can actually articulate them. But the number of words is, would be the equivalent if you could then articulate them verbally to 4,000 words per minute. And that is a lot of chatter happening in people's minds. He estimates that about a fourth of the people who exist, 25% uh, have someone else's voice that they hear that's doing most of the talking. And then about half the people will address themselves in the, in the second person. And they'll talk to themselves as you. This is what you need to do. You need to think about these things. He says most people's perception 
is that they're actually not the ones who are saying those things, but they're receiving them, they're hearing them. And then he likes to cite, these are the Polish researchers who uh, have done research, and maybe some of this doesn't translate quite into English, but what they found is that most people have a dialogue going with at least two of four primary characters who are always talking in their head. And the four primary characters, they say, is a, one is a, a faithful friend, who's someone who's there is encouraging you, telling you about your strengths. Uh, the other one, they say, is an ambivalent parent who's offering caring criticism. The other, another character is what they call the proud rival, who is goading you along, challenging you, critiquing you, pushing you. And then the last character, they say, is the helpless child who's articulating all the excuses for you. And they say you have normally kind of these four characters in your head around the table, and often one or two will be the, the dominant voices. So which voice do you recognize any of those characters? Which might be the more dominant one in your mind? read an interesting story this week about uh, Will Smith, who when he was on the set of the movie Suicide Squad, he, uh, when he first met, he goes up to Viola Davis, who's one of the actresses, and he asks her, he looks at her and says, who are you? And she was kind of taken back because she, I mean, you know, she, she, I guess, assumed, you know, Will Smith, I guess, is an A-list actor, and she might not have made it to A-list, and kind of thinking, all right, is he asking, like, what my name is or who my character is? She didn't really understand the question, so she I'm Vi Viola? And he said, look, if we're going to work together, you're going to, I need to know who you are. And he says, all right, you work with me. Um, I am always, who, who am I? I am always going to be that 15-year-old boy whose girlfriend dumped him because he wasn't good enough, and he has to prove himself. So that, that's who I am. Now, who are you? And she says in her book, Finding Me, that it just kind of took me back. I didn't know, like, hey, what's he asking? And I started thinking about it. And she says, where I landed is that I'm always going to be that little girl who would run every day after school in the third grade because there was a group of boys who hated me because I wasn't pretty and because I was black. That's always going to be who I am. And see, for both of them, it's so sad because that, that mental clutter, they've been poisoned by voices in the past, imprisoned by voices in the past. And one of the things Satan wants more than anything else is to whisper into your ear, remember the rejection. Remember the failure. That is who you are. It's who you were then it's who you are now, and it is all you ever will be. And clarity of mind comes when we're able to wash that voice away and not give them a seat at the table any longer and hear the kind of things that God tells Moses. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you. You didn't make you. Those failures didn't make you. Even your mama didn't make you. I made you. And here's what I'm going to do. 
And look in chapter 6, after Moses has experienced his next failure, the Lord repeats, he doesn't go over and over, this is who you are, who you are, who you are. Six times he says, I am the Lord. Here's what I'm going to do. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I didn't make myself known to them, but I made a covenant to them. And I have heard them. I have remembered you. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. And you will know when I bring you into the land of promise. Here's who I am. And that's what stops the mental clutter for Moses. And gives him clarity of mind. And don't you want to live that way? Don't you want to hear that voice? Clarity of mind comes from his word. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And then that then builds and perpetuates this courage to act. And one of the amazing things in this transformation is how Moses grows in this courage to act. And it comes from experiencing the power of praying in line with the will of the Lord. See, we hear Moses for the first time speaking to Pharaoh in plague number two, starting in chapter eight. And then God again gives Moses this long list. All right, this is what you're going to say. And so Moses goes and says it. Then you have the plague of the frogs. And then uh, Pharaoh calls Moses in verse eight. And he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. And from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. You know, it's interesting, just kind of a side note, it's really sad because it seems after plague two, this is when Pharaoh's heart is the softest and he's the closest to repenting here. You know, he gives no provisions, just plead with the Lord for me. He even calls him Yahweh. I, you, this, this all started because Moses came and said, Yahweh has appeared to us and Yahweh says to let my people go. And he says, who's Yahweh that I should obey him? He says, okay, plead with Yahweh. I will let you go sacrifice and uh, just let the frogs be gone. And then notice how Moses responds incredibly respectful with dignity, with honor, but courtesy. Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your household and your servant and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went away. Now pause. Now think about what's just happened. In some sense, Pharaoh's unimpressed because his magi magicians can replicate the frogs, but his problem is he doesn't draw the right conclusion. He's annoyed. He just wants it to go away. They can't fix it. He asks Moses to plead on his behalf, and then Moses, in that moment, his response is spontaneous and uninstructed, and he promises that God is about to remove all of the frogs, and he says, you can even name the day. You name the day, and then it's going to happen. And so Pharaoh says, tomorrow, Moses got it, done, so that you may know that the Lord is great. They're going to be gone tomorrow. And then you just think, I wonder what happened when Moses went back to his room. He is taking a huge risk. He has just promised that the entire devastation of the frogs are going to be gone tomorrow. What if God doesn't answer his prayer? What if God doesn't come through? So now notice what Moses does in verse 12. And Moses cried out to the Lord. 
Now, this is one of this is impassioned pleading. Whenever you see, especially in the Pentateuch, that they cried out to the Lord, that's when good things happen. But that's a desperate cry for deliverance. He cried out to the Lord and said, oh, God, I have, like, don't let me look like I put my giant foot into my mouth. I am taking a huge risk. And then look in verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. So he's, he's already learned that the whole point, the whole way to be successful and stable is that Moses must do according to the word of the Lord. But now, when he walks according to the will of the Lord, the Lord will do according to the word of Moses. His trust has been vindicated. I think you can see the dramatic power of his own praying. And then we're going to see this played out four different times in the plague. So in plague chapter 2, we see it played out. In plague chapter 4, Pharaoh calls and uses the same word every time. Plead to the Lord on my behalf. But there's a transition. He stops saying plead to Yahweh and just starts saying plead to to God, the generic God, in 4. He does it again in 7, but this time he recognizes in plague 7 that I I have sinned. My my people have sinned. And then after plague 8... He says, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against the Lord. And you see this cycle of growing confidence that Moses has in the Lord to do what Moses has asked him to do. He prays boldly, and he prays specifically, and he sees God act. Here, This would be another book, holiday book recommendation, but Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, He's got this wonderful little section where he looks at James, and James helps us understand because Moses is learning what James tells us, that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful. They avail much. But what James and Paul Miller kind of says, all right, but what James talks about is there's, in essence, kind of think you're on a path, this path of prayer, and there's a ditch on each side. And the goal is don't fall off on the ditch. That's the goal of so much of life. Just stay upright and moving and don't fall into the ditch. And he says, the ditch on one side is you do not have because you don't ask. You haven't asked. You're not asking for anything. So that's ditch this way. And then the ditch on the other side is you do ask, but you ask with the wrong motives. You ask to fuel your own passions. And what Paul Miller talks about is you have to, you come to a place where you, you do both. You ask boldly for bold, specific things but then you also surrender completely. Ask boldly, surrender completely. And if you're in danger of falling off on the ditch, which ditch might you fall into? Maybe you have not because you ask not. And Jesus has said, ask, seek, knock. So like Moses, ask boldly, but then on the other side, surrender completely. Surrender. So think about your own life. Is there anything you know that the Lord has put on your heart you need to ask for? Ask boldly. Or is there anything that you know you need to surrender completely and give up completely to him? So Moses' courage to act is fueled by his growing confidence that the Lord will hear his prayer and the Lord will answer his prayer when he's praying in line with the will of the Lord that he's told him. And this is a life-changing lesson. Do you remember when God first called Moses? He says, the only thing you need 
is my presence. Moses starts to list all of the reasons I can't do this. Like, okay, I, like, I don't have the knowledge. I don't know what to say. I don't have the skill. I'm not eloquent. Um, what if Pharaoh kills me? Um, and then finally, I, I just don't want to do it. So I don't have the knowledge I need. I don't have the skill I need. And I don't have the desire to do it. And God responds to all of those. All of those are irrelevant. The only thing you need is my presence. I will be with you. I don't have the knowledge. I will be with you. I don't have the skill. I will be with you. What if he wants to kill me? I will be with you. And what he's learning is that God's presence really is the only thing that matters. Is there certain knowledge he needs, skill he needs, favor with Pharaoh? Is that where the success is going to come from? Ultimately, no. It's God's presence. And so he sees that. The Lord begins to do according to the word of Moses. And then notice what that creates in Moses. This creates a profound stability of soul that comes from the conviction about walking in the ways of the Lord. So clarity of mind, courage to act, and then a stability of soul to be able to keep going. One of the interesting things as you go back and forth is Moses is not getting pushed around by Pharaoh. And in each of the times where Pharaoh calls Moses in, and then he says, all right, you can go, but... Actually, plague two is the only time where he says, all right, just go. Every time after that, he says, you can go, but... Pharaoh's trying to save face and show who's still in control. And what you see is he's so fickle and unstable, and he's all over the place. And you see Moses' confidence rising after each engagement in plague four in chapter eight. You know, Moses is called in, and he's told to go, but it's on Pharaoh's terms. And Moses points out, uh-uh, that's not going to work. You don't see kind of this groveling, passive person who's willing to take and accept anything. He's developing a backbone of steel. He says, nope, that's not going to work. And then Pharaoh calls him in again in plague seven, and Moses is not going to be taken in. And what Moses is learning is the utter reliability of the word of the Lord and the unreliability of the word of Pharaoh. And, you know, if, one of the, if the word of the Lord helps to clarify our internal voices, it also helps to clarify the external voices. And, you know, this is one of the challenging things about learning how to live. Whose voice are you going to listen to? You know, it's one of the things in the last, you know, the rise of social media. And one of the questions is, should, should the government regulate these different social media accounts because... Uh, Fake news can get so spewed, and evidently we're just don't have the ability to be able to decipher between what's true and what's not. We wrestle with that some of our kids as they grow up, and you know there's this beautiful season where uh, "Mommy said" is trumps everything. <laughs> everything in life can be determined. Uh-uh, mommy said. But at some point, I don't know if it's ever daddy said. We, I don't think we ever get to that. But at some point, there's a shift. And so, like, now we find ourselves fighting. So, you know, uh, like, who told you that? JoJo said. Well, nah. Like, Skippy told me that when you do this. <laughs> Am I competing with Skippy? What's Skippy's intellectual credentials to talk about this? So whose voice are you going to listen to? And here he proves himself to be more than Pharaoh's equal in negotiating, and this moral wisdom grows 
with each confrontation with Pharaoh. You see, the, uh, they confront him at the end of uh, chapter 8. And Pharaoh doesn't keep his word. And then another confrontation in plague seven in the middle of chapter nine. And Moses here, he's not going to be taken in by Pharaoh's commitment. And he starts to turn it on him and even uh, seeks to, to teach him something. And he grows in his discernment at the eighth plague. It's interesting because we don't hear God telling Moses or Aaron what to say. Instead, we hear Moses who's given an improvised speech on behalf of God and he gives the warning in chapter 10 and he doesn't wait for a response he storms out and then Pharaoh calls him back and says okay okay you can go but no kids men only and Moses says uh uh he's not dealing in any compromises in chapter 10 verse 9 you can see he's confident and he's decisive and then Pharaoh mocks him but Moses isn't going to give in and by plague number 9 he says alright you can go kids you can all go, you can go three days, but no animals. And by chapter 10, verse 25, you see Moses is in no mood to negotiate. And it makes very clear that nothing less than the total exodus is going to be acceptable. He's not speaking of a three-day journey, and it seems they are, he said, we are leaving with or without you. The only question is how bad is this going to go for you? So the utter, the power dynamics have utterly shifted. It's kind of like a dynamic, maybe you've ever felt where you've maybe talked to one of your children and you say, all right, this is going to happen. It's only a matter of how challenging it's going to be to get there. So at the end of the day, the room will be cleaned. Just depends how long it takes to get there. Or at 8.30, you, your bottom will be in your seat at school. It just depends on what's required to get you there. And so Moses, uh-uh, we are all going. The only question is what it's going to take to get us there. And then Pharaoh threatens Moses with his very life, the very thing that caused Moses to flee in the beginning, the thing he so deeply feared in chapter 2. And by chapter 11, he is no longer scared of that at all. And he sees Pharaoh's threat not as a sign of Pharaoh's power, but as a sign of his weakness. And when Pharaoh says, get out of my presence, you will never see my face again uh, as, as long as you live. And Moses says, you are right. But it is not because I'm the one who's going to be doing the following. So you see this traumatic, dramatic transformation. And Moses has this incredible now stability of soul where he's not getting tossed around by the whim of Pharaoh and the waves of hope of false hope of maybe this will happen maybe this won't happen so he has this incredible stability of soul and so when we look at these three things you know, that he gets threatened with you know what do you most need you know they work in harmony do you need clarity of mind and let me encourage you to commit to the word seek who you are and who he is in the word do you need more courage to act? And maybe begin by very small and specific things of, of praying for the Lord to do and to act. And you see him come through in these small ways and it can encourage you to move and act in larger ways. Maybe you need stability of soul. And that can, that can come from, a, from looking at the way of the Lord and a commitment to uh, seeing Jesus and his ultimate triumph and victory. See, Moses has become a rock. 
a rock that is unshakable and unbreakable. And Jesus gives the promise to all of his people in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, whoever hears these words of mine and then does them, you too can become like this rock. And when the storms come, they're coming. When the wind comes, it's coming. The rain is coming. But when it comes, it will beat on you and you will have security. You'll have a foundation because you've committed yourself to the word of the Lord to walk in his ways and to seek after his will. So let's pray and ask the Lord for these things. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We praise you for the power, your transformative power that can come from the presence of your Holy Spirit. That when we open ourselves up to your word and when we seek to walk in your ways and when we seek to live our life in accordance with your will, we can experience that transformation that Moses experienced as well. So I pray for anyone here in this room now who they feel just mentally scattered. We pray that you will uh, calm the internal storm, silence the voices at the table who are speaking lies to them. I pray for anyone who's found themselves uh, afraid to act. I pray that they would uh, encourage them to call out to you and cry out to you like Moses did. And I pray and ask that you would come through on their behalf. Encourage them, motivate them. And I pray for anyone who feels tossed and needs stability of soul, that you would give them a deep, profound sense of soul rest, stable, secure in your presence with the hope of your coming victory and kingdom. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. So he, each week here at Trinity, we come to the Lord's table. And the Lord's table symbolizes so many of these things. This gift of his word, the ability. You know, it says, my body is broken, so yours can be come back together and made whole again. And the way we do it here, we have four stations, two at the front, two in the back. There'll be a gluten-free station in the back. And then uh, you come and you take the wafer and you dip and you are reminded of his gift of grace and mercy. So once our servers are in place, you come.